There's an article in Forbes uh, last month that tells the story of a restaurant in Tokyo where customers are happy to get bad service. Maybe you saw this or you, you heard it on NPR. But according to the writer, uh, they say, you ask for dumplings and you get miso soup. Whoops. You order grilled fish and maybe you get sushi. Wait a minute. What? It's a regular thing for the waiters and waitresses to mix things up, bring the wrong meal, misunderstand what a customer requests, or actually drink the glass of water they're meant to deliver to some table. The writer goes on to say, so you go thirsty for a bit. This sort of thing gets these workers hired, not fired. Now, to the uninitiated here, this would all seem out of sorts. Not the way things are supposed to be. Surely this is some kind of joke or even performance art. But the writer goes on to say that this is not the case. It is, it is real. Instead, this is serious business here. It's a recurring and popular pop-up restaurant aptly named Restaurant of Mistaken Orders. Where according to the article, waiters and waitresses all have dementia. They all have dementia. It isn't a flaw, it's the feature. It's the primary qualification for the job. The restaurant's organizer, Shiro Oguni, wanted to broaden the public's awareness of dementia and to change perceptions about aging and progressive cognitive impairments. And so, in a surprising way, this restaurant concept does just that, all the while reversing diners' expectations and turning service industry expectations literally on their head. At some points, the customers actually serve the staff. And there was an example here in the, in the article uh, where at least on one case, the server came up and had the customer at the table take the orders of the rest of the table. Just handed them, said, hey, go and take their order. This all is a reproducible concept that Oguni invites others to copy in their own context around the world. And all of this, of course, is more than a cute, feel-good story. It tends to be something other than a novelty. Instead, Oguni hopes that it has a transformative effect on the diners and the way that they care for others, whether those people have dementia or not. And at the same time, the presentation itself, this whole restaurant concept, reminds us of the value of turning the expected on its head to shift the paradigm in order for us to see a new way forward and to gain a greater vision and clarity for an altogether better kind of life. Shocking the system invites new sensibilities, as it were, which is certainly the case in our two readings this morning, taken from both Jonah and then from Matthew's Gospel. This first reading here from Jonah, and for those who are not familiar with the story of Jonah, or at least the underlying story here, we have a prophet uh, who was commanded to go to the people of Nineveh, who are not Jewish. He's a Jewish prophet sent to, to go to Nineveh, which is not Jewish, and preach. Uh, but the prophet refuses to go. says, I'm not, I'm not going. Instead, he attempts to flee and ends up in the belly of a great fish, as the story goes. Once he has returned to the task, though, he declares God's judgment on the city and then waits for that certain destruction to come. Can't wait to see the city get destroyed. I hate those guys. Which brings us to our text, where we see God, from the very beginning, changing his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon Nineveh. And not only changing his mind, but changing directions altogether. That we hear that in chapter 3, verse 10. God is, in fact, far more merciful 
than the prophet would want. And Jonah doesn't like that one bit. Now, you know the story? We know the story, right? We know Jonah. We've heard that one. We've preached that one. Douglas Stewart here observes that Jonah appears especially selfish, petty, temperamental, and even downright foolish. That's his observation. Gerhard van Rad actually says that his hatred is embarrassing and ridiculous. I would add here that Jonah looks narrow and petty. We're not supposed to like Jonah as readers. When you read the book of Jonah, you're not supposed to like that guy. You're supposed to hate him. You're supposed to despise him. You're supposed to say he's ridiculous. Who is that guy? What on earth is that guy's problem? That's what you're supposed to think as you read Jonah. And we're supposedly not supposed to stand for what he stands for. And we're not supposed to side with him. The question at the end of the reading, the very end of Jonah's book, the book of Jonah ends with a, very, a question. And it's positioned there to move readers away from a Jonah mindset. It's to take us outside of being like Jonah. And the reason it's there is because we're so many times like Jonah. And so the question is positioned to take us out of that mindset. Or what Stuart identifies as... We're to see the world as God sees it, a world greatly in need of mercy. So the Jonah story challenges us on that front. We press on this Jonah mindset more. It's particularly troubling that the character we are talking about here, i.e. Jonah, does in fact know God is merciful. Right? The prophet knows that. He's not unaware of grace. And he admits that in verse 2. I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from punishment. It's the reason that he flees the original job and which got him into fist trouble to begin with. Jonah knew his Bible, as we might say. He knew his Bible. You know what the Bible says? He counts himself amongst the recipients of God's mercy. He's one of God's people, yet still doesn't want that for a group he has identified as persons outside or without grace. Why? Why would he say that? The late Tim Keller concludes in his book, The Prodigal Prophet, that Jonah wants a God of his own making, a God who simply smites the bad people, for instance, the wicked Ninevites and blesses the good people, for instance, Jonah and his countrymen. When the real God, not Jonah's counterfeit, keeps showing up, Jonah is thrown into fury or despair. Now I add here, the prophet doesn't want God. Jonah wants Gumby. He wants Gumby, a figure that he can bend and mold into his own liking. And maybe Pokey too. But Jonah isn't alone here. He's not alone in this type of thinking like I said previously. Commentator Leslie Allen observes that Jonah lurks in every Christian heart, whimpering his insidious message of smug prejudice, empty traditionalism, and exclusive solidarity. And for generations of Christians, we've admitted as much in singing Frederick William Favor's 1862 hymn, There's a Wideness in God's Mercy. Especially when we sing, but we make God's love too narrow by false limits of our own, and we magnify its strictness with zeal God will not own. We'll come back to Favor's hymn shortly. But for now, it's safe to assume that Nineveh's salvation not only says much about God and God's heart and what God is up to, as it serves to shake up Jonah and to shake up readers, or at least it's supposed to, to stir us toward new sensibilities about God's grace and what that might hold not only for the ancient city 
but for our modern selves and our modern neighborhoods we live in. There's a wideness in God's mercy indeed. That seems simple enough, right? That's simple. We got that. But yet the wideness in God's mercy still somehow stands outside the imagination of those first century ancients that Jesus is talking to. And so Jesus uses the seemingly unfair distribution of wages to calibrate their imaginations to a God's eye view. With early hires receiving as much compensation as late arrivals, this one stings on a number of fronts. Expectations, notions of what is fair, jealousy, etc. You can add to the list there. And it pokes at our inclination to demand for ourselves what we are unwilling to extend to another. And perhaps even more, upending our notions of human ranking and merit, which were important in Jesus' day as they are important in our own day as well. And just as Jonah confronts our vision of the way things are, here in Matthew we once more are met with the stinging clarity that God operates quite differently from our human inclinations. The question in verse 15 exposes as much. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Yes, the master is. But like Jonah, sometimes knowing this, it stings. Perhaps a bit like medicine. Perhaps a bit like medicine. That sensation becomes all the more with, so the last will be first, and the first will be last, here in verse 16. Here the valuation we might place on another is upended by the valuation expressed in God's grace. As favors him offers, for the love of God is broader than the measures of the mind, and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. God's grace leads commentator Leon Morris here to conclude, because God acts in grace and we so easily think in terms of merit, there will be many surprises for us all in the end when God's will is seen in its final working out. Jonah may himself find himself standing next to a Ninevite in the kingdom. And if I'm reading Isaiah chapter 19 correctly, he will. He will. That inclination to not claim our own blessing over another, that's the grace economy. And credit should be given here to commentator R.T. France who makes this observation, or at least this association, that perhaps the dodo, the dodo, when was the dodo ever right? But the dodo in Alice in Wonderland has it right. When it comes to grace, everybody has won and all must have prizes. The Ninevites, the Jewish folks, the people in the kingdom. It's not merit-based. It's grace-based. I titled this sermon after the 1995 Joan Osborne song of the same name. If you look in your bulletin, you see those titles, you wonder, where do these titles come from for these sermons? This one came from Joan Osborne's 1995 song, One of Us. All right, you're welcome. You'll be singing that all day now, those who know it. Well, in an interview about this song, uh, which I viewed on, you guessed it, YouTube, Osborne observes this. She says, I like the song. It catches your ear because not many pop songs are talking about God. And not many pop songs are asking about, you know, what you think of God. And so, of course, it grabs you. So what if God is one of us? Just a slob like one of us. 
just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. Raises in us questions about who God is. What do you think about God, like Osborne says? What, what's God like? What does God think? How does God act? Well, we read Jonah, we read Matthew, and we recognize that those texts are written within context. Where, particularly in the Jonah case, you know, in this time of Ezra and Nehemiah, the nationalist fervor that raised up at that time, that sense to become part and belong, to be truly Jewish and to claim that identity around the law and to be strict about adherence and what it means to be this people. And to know that a book like Jonah gets written and it poses a question at the end that expands that grace out even further and says it's not just us four and no more, but it's expanded out to even more. Or in, Jew- in Jesus' day, Matthew's gospel and Jesus is teaching to a people who under the, the rule of the Roman Empire that so valued merit who you knew, what you accomplished, and how great names and backgrounds and associations were, and who was connected to who, and who, in our day, we might say, who went to what school and did this, and what family do you come from? But when asking the question of what is God like, that both of these texts point us towards an expansive grace, an incredibly expansive grace, how it turns the world on its head, and transforms us to see something different, to see the world differently. Going back to that opening story about Oguni who organized that restaurant with the servers who all had dementia, Oguni has said that his project isn't simply about being more understanding and embracing of those who have dementia. He's trying to show how people can be kind to one another regardless of shortcomings. He writes writes this from the interview with him. It says, we want to change society to become more caring and easygoing. So dementia or no dementia, we can live together in harmony. Doesn't that sound a lot like grace? That grace is trying to move us as a community and as a world. That the project, the operation that God has set into motion and that God attends to through the power of the Holy Spirit is one that's moving us towards shalom, peace, and total well-being that we can live in harmony and that the great questions of Scripture here in Jonah and Matthew drop us on our head, hit us with the unexpected, that we might truly discover God's grace and that we might be at play in those fields and enjoy them forever. Maybe so for our generation this day and every day of our lives. Amen. Friends, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us and the love that is not only shown to us, but particularly shown to us in Jesus Christ. The love that is spoken to us in words of challenge and questions that cause us to have to examine ourselves and our motivations. But not to leave us feeling guilty, but to draw us to a place of grace and mercy, of forgiveness, to recognize the love that you have extended to us long before our guilt set in. And so, Lord, as your people who trust you and love you, as those who put our lives before you and ask you to mold us and to shape us, we pray that this word would follow us and continue with us by your Spirit's grace and power, that we might know you all the more, and that we might live faithful lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.